Well, the first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created light, the waters, the trees, the plants, the sun and the moon, every creeping thing. And finally, he created man. And man was the chief step of creation, the crown jewel in everything God had made. And man had something that no other created being had, the image of God, meaning we reflect the attributes and authority of the creator as he gave us dominion over all the earth. And God blessed the first man, Adam, and commanded him to multiply, to carry his image over the face of the whole planet. And when God surveyed everything he had done, when he looked at it all, he declared it all very good. And then God gives law, the first commandment. He speaks to Adam saying, and you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives this command to the man who in turn is to give it to his wife. If you note, if, if you read through, through this in your own time, you'll find that Eve is not even created at this point. When God gives the command, he gives it to Adam and then it creates Eve. And it was good. It was perfect. It was paradise. A perfect world reflecting the perfect creativity of the creator. But then, of course, we hit chapter three. Read with me. Open your Bibles. Read with me verses one through five. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent shows up somewhat unexpectedly in the story. Everything's going pretty well, and poof, in comes the serpent. It says he was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord had made. Now, when you look at the word crafty, that is kind of ambiguous. It could be a good thing, or it could be a bad thing. There's ambiguity here at the onset. What is the serpent here for? What's he doing? Who is it? It's a bit haunting, that statement, even ominous, even before he opens his mouth. There's a sinister edge to the statement. And we have to ask the question when we look at this, who is the serpent? The very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, says this, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. In the Bible, Satan is called the adversary, the father of lies, the God and ruler of this world. He prowls around like a lion seeking to devour us, and he, this being, is present in the beginning, in the perfect garden which God had created. And if you're anything like me, you look at this and you have to think, how did this dude get past the bouncer? How is he in the garden at all? Why would God, if everything is good, allow Satan in the garden? Why would he allow Satan to tempt them? He could have stopped that, surely. And this is a legitimate question, and it's one that needs to be considered. 
But this morning, that is not going to be the focus of what we look at. I wanted to address it because it is important and it's a question. We don't have time to cover all the ins and outs of that question this morning. But here's what I will say real quickly. The Bible rejects the notion of dueling gods, meaning God and Satan have not been hammering it out equally matched through eternity past. It's not a question of who will win or who's more powerful. We already know the outcome. The serpent owes its very existence to God and is only in the garden because God permits it and, dare I say, ordains that he be there. Though the fall is a catastrophic failure that cast all of creation into ruin, it is not outside the sovereignty of God. But now let's turn our attention to the serpent's temptation. Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Note the opening salvo of the devil's attack here. Did God actually say? He casts doubt on what God had said. He does not overtly contradict it yet. He just throws it into question to weaken the woman's confidence in God, God's word. And this very same attack is still employed by the enemy to this very day. Has God really said that? Many will challenge every single claim, statement, and command of Scripture. But we are Christians. If the Bible really is, if it really is what God intended to be revealed to man, if it is the Word of God, then it must be the anchor, the chief anchor on which we ground our lives. And look, the serpent doesn't just question it. He twists what God said. Can you really not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God has said. It's as though some unjust restriction of liberty was imposed upon them. And the devil's underlying suggestion in asking this question is this. If God restricts even one thing, if he gives any law, then it might, God might as well have restricted everything. Interestingly enough, Eve kind of corrects the serpent's error. She's like the first apologist in the Bible. She responds by saying to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Some say that Eve adding, we may not touch it, was a wrongfully added restriction demonstrating that she was wavering in her commitment to God. As God never told them they couldn't touch it. That's not what he said. So some have said, well, it's showing that she's adding to what God had commanded, and therefore she's starting to waver a little bit. I don't think that's the case here. I actually think it's more likely that she was rightly regarding the weight of the command and felt that to touch the tree would be flirting with disobedience. Have you ever watched what happens. I think there's a video online that talks about this. Have you ever watched what happens if you take a marshmallow and stick it in front of a kid and say, don't eat the marshmallow. Just leave them and watch. They're like, they'll rest their tongue on it gently. <laughs> they'll pick it apart and, you know, spin it around and smell it. And, you know, while it may not yet be disobedience, it sh uh, certainly doesn't show a great measure of restraint. I think it's likely that Eve is placing a guardrail to prevent her from even associating with the tree. But judge for yourselves whether or not that's the case. And then the subtlety drops here. Almost shockingly so. 
as Satan flips the switch, he blasts Eve with a full-on frontal assault. He lies to her. Look at this. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He seizes Eve's apparent doubts and finds the crack in her resolve and wedges in his deceit by directly denying the woman's prior statements with three counterclaims. One, he says, you won't die. You can transgress against God. You can sin. There's no penalty. There's no consequence. You can do whatever you want and get away with it. It won't be that bad. Two, he says, your eyes will be opened, meaning you'll have knowledge, you'll see. And three, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This really is Satan's invite to autonomy, to grasp for self-rule. If you just eat the fruit, you'll throw off that restrictive yoke that God has unjustly placed on you to limit you from the knowledge of good and evil. If you want true freedom, if you want to choose, if you want to be sovereign to determine your own nature and your own rules, here's your ticket. Satan, in this statement, makes God out to be selfish and deceptive, holding Eve back from her full potential, from having that knowledge immediately. The serpent attempts to shift her focus away from thanksgiving for all that God had provided, all the trees they, she could eat of, to thinking that God should be obligated to give it all to her now, everything. He shouldn't get to hold things back and deny us what we want. This is the fountain of error, thinking we are our own gods and therefore should determine and decide our own rules. The arrogance of man is thinking that everything we want to have, we ought to have. And that everything that there is to have or know belongs to us. But it doesn't. It does not belong to us. We don't set our own limits, not then and not now. The creator sets them for us. Recently, I caught myself lamenting the various restrictions and limits placed on my life. Good things. I wish I was smarter. (laughs) I wish that I could memorize things uh, like other people can. I wish I had the intellect that uh, my professors had at at Moody. You know, I I wish that, uh, I I wish I had these things. Why hasn't God given them to me? Why can't I be better than I am? I want to jump forward several decades and just gain the experience and wisdom and maturity that comes with age now. I struggle with contentment, greedily wanting to be my own God and determine my own limits. And perhaps you've also felt these thoughts seep into your brain. Why did God make me like this? Why don't I have that particular gifting? I want that one. Why did God not give me this role? I think I do well at. I think I'd honor him by having this role. Why don't I have it? Why has God not given that to me? But this is the very error of Eve thinking that she could reach beyond what God granted for her to have. God has given you and I particular skills, 
and gifts. And he's intentionally limited us and restricted us. Romans 1 teaches that not acknowledging God or giving him thanks is the starting point of depravity. Eve had the whole garden. She had everything. She had whatever she wanted provided for her. But she didn't give thanks here. She didn't acknowledge everything God had given her. She wanted more. And that's precisely what my attitude has been. Grabbing for more than God has currently granted me. We need to be careful to not overstep God's given limits and his roles, but instead be thankful for what he has given us. Who gets to tell us who we are? What, what can and can't we do with our bodies and our actions and even our thoughts? How about what gender we are to be? Who tells us what roles men and women ought to have? Just because we want something doesn't mean it is what, it is what God has given us now. God determines these things, not us, not culture, God. God lays out for us restrictions in the Bible, and they are good restrictions, good things, not bad, not to be despised, not to be thrown off, good. I'm a 24-year-old married man, and I ought to be content with what God has given me and thankful for all the things that I have as a 24-year-old married man. These are the things I have been given to do, to work with the talents that I've been given, to show myself faithful with the little that I do have. We are the Lord's subjects, and he distributes knowledge and understanding and authority and autonomy according to his own will. And then we turn to the fall itself. Read with me verses 6. Through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve saw that the fruit was good. It was a delight. It was desirable to the eyes. And so she ate. It appears like Adam was likely present for the serpent's temptation, but he also took and ate. Scripture tells us that Adam was not deceived like Eve was, but that he willfully disobeyed. 1 Timothy 2.14 says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. All the pain in the world, sickness, your wicked heart, 
your broken desires. All the disasters and calamity of history can be traced back to this very moment. Here, in these honestly somewhat anticlimactic verses, mankind fell. What did it gain them? What did they get from it? Well, first, knowledge. Verse 7 says, the eyes of both were opened. Second, shame. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. And third, guilt and fear. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. The serpent's promise came up short. The so-called wisdom they received was that they were naked, ashamed, and guilty. The devil's promise did not exactly yield the greatness that Eve had hoped it would, and sin never does. Then God enters the the story um, as though nothing happened, (laughs) almost. He shows up walking through the garden in the evening, which paints an image of how he sought to relationally be with us. If you you want an image of what would it be like to be with God without having fallen, God walking through the garden in the evening. Now, this word walk here in this verse, uh, it's not the uh, Hebrew word that refers to going from point A to point B, like I'm going somewhere. It carries with it the sense of strolling or meandering. Adam and Eve were made to delight in the presence and communion of God. And now they hide from the very one for whom they were created. He calls to them, where are you? Adam responds to God saying, I hid because I was afraid because I was naked. Adam is fearful of God's voice, but he doesn't immediately fess up. He doesn't say, I ate, I ate the fruit. He attributes his hiding not to disobedience, but to nakedness, as though maybe he could not admit what happened. Oh, it's because I'm naked. But then God asks point blank, verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not uh, not to eat? There's no getting out of this one for Adam. Look at what Adam says. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree to me and I ate. So Adam does admit to it. He he eventually admits, I I ate, but he deflects the blame off of himself to the woman. And he even takes a slight jab at God. Do you notice that? The woman you gave to be with me. Don't look at me. Contrast that for a moment with Christ who took upon himself the sins of his bride, the church. Very, very different. As Eve's husband, it would be manly for Adam to bear the responsibility and weight of their transgression. But he doesn't. God then calls upon the woman, verse 13, what is this that you have done? And she passes on that blame balloon to the next, blame balloon to the next party, the serpent. Then curiously, Really interestingly, do you notice what questions God asks the serpent? None. God does not question the serpent at all. doesn't ask any questions, as he did with Adam and Eve. And this makes us wonder, why did God ask them questions in the first place? Especially if God knows everything. God knows all things. That's what the Bible tells us. Why bother questioning them if he already knew? In my life, on, let me tell you, exceptionally rare occasions, my wife will sometimes ask me, is there a reason you didn't put away your laundry? Like I said, exceptionally rare. 
But let me tell you, she ain't asking to get a legitimate answer. She's not really wondering why. The question in itself implies the answer. She's trying to goad me into putting away my laundry and confessing that I really didn't have a good reason for not doing it before. <laughs> That's what the Lord is doing with Adam and Eve here. God does not appear to them a wrathful judge like we would expect. He comes to them rather gently. Right after the fall, he comes to them gently, like a father coaxing them to confess what happened. And here, in that, we start to see the mercy of God on display. He doesn't strike them down in judgment immediately. He mercifully seeks for a confession. He doesn't offer that same mercy to the serpent. The serpent receives nothing but a curse. Let's read verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God comes, he first speaks to Adam, as Adam uh, bears the responsibility for his family's actions. First comes to Adam, then goes to Eve, then goes to the serpent. And we're going to see the curse occurs in the opposite order. He goes to the serpent, then he goes to the woman, then he finishes on the man. So let's look at the serpent right now. 3.14, because you have done this, because you've deceived Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you should go, and dust you should, shall eat all the days of your life. Many have read this. You, you've probably heard this. Many have read that on your belly you should go as a sign that the serpent originally had legs, uh, two or four legs, and devolved here into a slithery type thing. And while this is perhaps plausible, God could certainly do it if he wanted to, I don't think that's what's happening here. It seems more likely that God is assigning a symbol of unique dishonor to something that was already true of the serpent to, show, to serve as a sign of what the serpent did. Similar to how the rainbow likely existed prior to the flood, but God merely assigned a meaning to it. Dust is what man will return to after he dies. The habits of the serpent are to be a reminder. You serpent, you will eat the result of the destruction you caused. He is marked by the humiliating reminder of that which he introduced into God's good creation. And then we come to Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 is perhaps my favorite verse in all of Scripture. Read it with me. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice this here. We see enmity come between the serpent and the woman. There's going to be conflict and strife between them. And then one step removed, her, your offspring, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And then the third line, he says, he shall bruise your head. Look at this. The parallelism here is broken. We see this entity between a mysterious he figure, who's he, Adam, and the serpent. Since the serpent is mentioned, he says, your head, we should expect a reference to the woman. That would complete the parallelism. But instead, we have this strangely placed masculine pronoun, he and his. And look at what this he will do. He'll bruise the head of the serpent. This word bruise means a fatal wound. This seed of the woman will fatally bruise or crush, some translations say, the head of the serpent. But he himself will be fatally attacked. Okay, so step back for a moment and look at this and consider the craziness of what this is saying. God creates everything perfect. That creation rebels against him, listening to the voice of his enemy. And the very first promise that God gives, the very first thing that he says after mankind spits on his face is the enemy will be dishonored and humiliated for what he's done. And more than that, one will come from the seed of the woman. He will himself be a descendant of Eve and will fatally destroy the serpent. What is God's immediate response to the sin of man? There will come a savior. Our God will punish the one who dared infiltrate his garden, who dared tempt his image bearers. And this descendant of Eve will himself be struck on the heel. A fatal blow, though not on the head, a different kind of blow. This verse is commonly referred to as the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel as this seed is Jesus. When he came, when Jesus came, he crushed the works of Satan and dealt a fatal blow to him. Christ himself being killed, fatally struck. No power, no temptation, no evil working of Satan could stop the foreordained plan of God the plan which was from the very beginning to bring all things under the head of Christ who is himself the very God we dared rebel against. Whereas death seems the necessary consequence for the transgression of Adam, the serpent receives the brunt of the curse. And this offspring, this seed is traced from Eve through Seth to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Judah, to David, to the kings of Judah, down to Joseph and Mary, and to Jesus of Nazareth. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God bringing forth the offspring of the woman just as he'd promised he would do. The fall is the most cataclysmic event of human history. It, it is, uh, we look at it as the most absolute, 
terrible, tragic thing that could ever happen. It's just the word. It's the start of everything bad. And mixed in this is the most brilliantly shining image of the mercy and grace of God. That ought to cause us to reorient the way we think. (laughs) The very first thing God reveals to us after the fall is he is merciful and he is gracious. Then God turns his attention to the woman. Verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Note the surprising grace of even verse 16. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was what was told to them. But what, what is God's curse to the woman? When you have babies, it's going to hurt. Did you catch that? The day you eat of it, you're sure, you'll surely die. What's your punishment? It's going to hurt when you have babies. Adam and Eve are promised a future through childbearing. The fact that they survived to have children is the mercy of God. And then second, the woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Much has been made of these verses, much discussion. And so what exactly does it mean? Well, these, the, the two words that are kind of the, the center point of that is desire and rule. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And these same two words are used just a chapter later when speaking of Cain's relationship to sin, rather sin's relationship to Cain. Look here at Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The usage of these words helps us clue into what God is saying back in 3.16. The desire here is not emotional. It's not saying sin emotionally doesn't want, doesn't want Cain, it's emotionally contrary to him, but that it wants to dominate and control Cain. So Cain must rule over it. He must master it. He must control it. And in a similar way, chapter 3, verse 16 is saying that women will now seek to dominate and master their husbands, yet their husbands will rule over them. In contrast to the created order, women will now seek dominance over their husbands who are to be over them. Some Christians teach that a wife's submission to her husband is a negative result of the curse, and that male headship was not initially put and built into creation. In other words, that it was never God's created intention for men and women to have different roles. If this is true, then our conviction that men are leaders of the household and that the office of elder ought to be occupied by men is misplaced, it's compromised. This is not true. God did build male headship into creation. I want to look a little bit at this for a couple moments. The roles of men and women were frustrated, but not fundamentally changed by the fall. We find this motif of frustration throughout the curse. The serpent already crawled on its belly, but now it represents dishonor and humiliation. Prior to the fall, it wasn't Adam who would bear children. It it was Eve. If they were to have children, Eve would still bear children. But now her role as childbearer was subject to frustration and distortion. Now bearing children could kill her. It would certainly cause her great pain. The role of childbearing will be painful and twisted. But children still come from women. Likewise, Adam's work is frustrated, but not new. 
Adam worked in the garden prior to the fall. But after the curse, the ground doesn't comply. His work has become frustrated, not created. These creation truths were not destroyed, nor were they fundamentally altered. They were frustrated. The idea that submission and male headship is a negative effect of the fall doesn't follow the pattern of the curse. Adam was to be the head of his wife in a God-ordained and God-honoring way even before the fall. And Eve was rightly to submit to Adam. And it was to be good. Submission that is virtuous and good. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that these godly dynamics between a husband and wife are to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. The fall did not create the category of frustration, or of uh, submission, I'm sorry. It frustrated it. Let me say that again. The fall did not create the category of submission. It frustrated it. Now finally, let's turn our attention to what God said to Adam. To Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife, because you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you, don't eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. God turns to Adam and gives him the reason for his judgment. Because you listened to your wife. Remember before, Adam deflected the blame. He cast it off, but there's no way out of this one. <laughs> He's caught without anything to say before God. And the blame for his iniquity falls squarely on his own shoulders. God looks at Adam and says, because you disobeyed me, I'm cursing the ground on account of you. Man's job to work the ground is now subject to frustration, meaning Adam's work and therefore man's work will be hard and laborious, confounded by the appearance of thorns and thistles. He'll sweat. He'll have to work hard to survive. Work will not yield the easy satisfaction and joy it used to, as there will be hard toil, frustrations, and exhaustion. Yet work, and this is, this is critical, work in and of itself is not a result of the fall. It was always God's plan that man would work. Now the work is frustrated. And then God says, man will die. Death. Death is the very undoing of what God has done. God created man from the dust, and now man will again return to the dust. It is the inevitable consequence of sin. Death is not normal. That's why it hurts. It's an alien invader to God's creation. Death is the deepest, most tragic, most significant, most potent effect of the fall. The most advanced medicine and technology, world peace, enlightened culture cannot change the fact that we are but dust. We are all dust. And to dust we will return. That's what awaits all of us. Every funeral proves this point. While humanity may improve conditions, living conditions, whatnot, advances in medicine, it will never escape the consequences of sin. We will all die. And so, God issued judgment for their sin. The serpent will be destroyed. The woman will suffer. 
the man will struggle. And then, death. And while the narrative story tells us of these particular effects of the fall, the rest of Holy Scripture gives us a view of what else happened on account of Adam's sin. Things not explicitly mentioned in this passage. I'm going to focus on four things this morning. One, because of this, creation is subject to futility. Paul tells us in Romans 8, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation is no longer good like it was initially. Something broke in the universe when Adam fell. Tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, plagues, cancer. All these things occur as a result of sin. Sin broke what God created to be upright and beautiful. God did not make creation like this. It was not willingly subjected to futility. It groans, waiting and yearning for the revelation of glory to come where God will make a new heavens and a new earth and will fix what's been broken. Two, sin nature. When Adam and Eve sinned, it caused us all to be bent towards sin. Paul wrote in Romans 5:12, sin came into the world through one man. Sin entered the world through Adam and we're all infected with it. From birth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is why our nature is now corrupt. It's twisted. We can't even naturally want to do things pleasing in God's sight any longer. This is why Paul states none is righteous and that none seek for God. It's why our hearts are deceitful above all things. It's why our hearts have been darkened and why we now have debased minds. For those in Adam, It is not possible not to sin, as St. Augustine put it. That's why David writes in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Three, inherited, inherited guilt. The Bible tells us that we are counted guilty on account of Adam's sin. That his sin has been credited to our accounts. When God looks at us, this is what this means, when God looks at us, he finds us guilty for our sins, but he also finds us guilty for Adam's sin. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One trespass, meaning Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. Condemnation is definitionally the opposite of justification. We are inherently guilty because of Adam. Some may consider this really unfair. That's a common objective, uh, objection to this. This isn't fair. I didn't do it. Why would God count me guilty for something I didn't do? But consider for a moment how a president represents a country. 
If our president did something to bring down the wrath of another country on the United States, we, as those living in the U.S., would bear the consequences if that country went to war with us. Did we personally do something that warranted being held accountable for another's action? No. But our president is our elected representative. He rightly represents all of us when he interacts with other nations. And in a similar way, Adam was a type of representative for all humanity, what we call our federal head. If it isn't fair for Adam to represent us in this way, then it wouldn't be fair for Jesus to represent us either. What Paul is saying in this particular text is Adam's sin declares us guilty in the same way that Jesus' act of righteousness declares us righteous. Just as we are now in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 says we were all also in Adam. And these previous two points are components of this last point. We are spiritually dead. Death is separation. Physical death is separation of the physical and spiritual components of man. Spiritual death is the separation between God and man. God told Adam and Eve that in the day they eat of the fruit, they shall die. And Adam and Eve, the day they ate of the fruit, experienced separation from God. They were ripped from his presence in the garden and cast out. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.1 about us, and you were dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Those in the realm and effects of sin are spiritually dead from birth. Not injured, not a little bit hurt. Dead. We could do nothing to resuscitate ourselves. Our, our relationship to sin is such that we do not have the power to be free of it. And because on account of the spiritual death, people go to hell. Hell is the somewhat uncomfortable truth of the Christian faith. But listen, it's important to think about because this is what we're saved from. Scripture tells us that hell was primarily created for the devil and his angels. But it is where all those who have not believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins will be eternally cast. Hell is real. It's a real place, not a state of mind. It's real. The Bible refers to it as the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. It's a place away from the presence of the Lord, a place of eternal, ceaseless torment where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. Those are the words of Jesus. And after the fall, after Adam sinned, the default is not that we'll all go to heaven. It's the exact opposite. The exact opposite. Man hangs by a mere thread over the pit of hell. And without Christ, apart from Christ, you may be a mere split second away from the eternal flames. In Adam, in man, nothing but death is found. The wages of sin is death. Our deadness causes transgression upon transgression. Thus, we're prompted to look outside of ourselves for an answer. How do we slay this invulnerable and inevitable dragon of death? We don't. We can't. We need another. We need a new Adam. One will, who will succeed where the first one failed. 
1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so what do we do with all of this? What should we do because of all these things? One, chiefly, top priority, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let me urge you for a moment. If you have not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, do not wait a single moment to do so. Hell is open before you. Its flames are literally licking the bottom of your shoes. And the only answer is Jesus. I urge you, turn in faith to Christ this very day for the complete forgiveness of sins. If you have questions, if you want to know more, talk to any member of the Mission Church. Do not wait another minute. Who knows? Who knows but God when your time on earth will be over? We all die because of the fall. Every single one of us. You will too. Maybe in 50 years. Maybe tonight. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Two, don't permit the twisting of God's word to your destruction. Satan came in disguise in the form of a creature that was very good. His tactic was to call into question what God had said. The temptation itself was masked as something good. But truthfully, underneath that, it was cosmic rebellion. Twisting and violating God's word is commonly masked, commonly masked behind a list of so-called goods. One's rights, wealth, equality, initiative, justice, knowledge, all pitched as good things when they are in fact the front, a front for rebellion. But these misnomers are as old as time. God's word tells us who we are and what we ought to do. We don't determine what's good and what's evil. God does. As Christians, we defend ourselves from temptation by being well acquainted with God's word. Culture does not dictate for us what's true. It doesn't. Today's values are constantly changing, shifting around. What was true 10 years ago is not true today, and you all know that that's the case. What was once regarded as evil is now praised. You cannot trust the world, and you cannot trust your heart. We must vigorously cling to that which is plainly stated and taught in Holy Scripture. Don't be ashamed for appealing to the Word of God as the basis for your thinking. Don't be ashamed for that. Why do we believe X? Because it's right here. Right here. Why do we believe Y? Because it's in the Bible. That's why. Let me show you the verse that teaches us that. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. And third thing, eagerly hope for the revealing of the glory of God. The story of the fall is strangely laced with hope and grace. The Lord God is merciful and gracious. A Savior's coming. God appeared to Adam and Eve as one strolling through the garden. What a foreign concept for us as those marred by sin. But this is the hope. That is the hope that we have in Jesus to dwell personally with God forever. Your life is to be marked by hope. You cannot have Christianity without hope. 
We don't weep when all appears grim. We don't wail with the world, crying out, no hope, all's lost. We struggle, we fail, we're crushed, we're discouraged, but Jesus is coming back. Hope is an integral part of the Christian's life. It is a core mark of the believer's life. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us, don't grieve. Don't grieve as others who have no hope. Life will be hard. It'll be an uphill struggle. It will be. You know this better than I. It will be an uphill struggle with burdens aplenty. But, oh, church, we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal glory, where we are no longer restricted from the tree of life, but we are indeed permitted to take of it freely in the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem. When you're tempted to despair, take heart. Jesus is coming. The thematic thrust of the fall is not on man's works, not even on the fall itself. That's not great confession, not great repentance. The thrust of it is on God who has mercy. That is the theme center stage through this narrative. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of the mercy and grace of God, the fulfillment of the promise made to those who plunged us into the dark, miry depths of sin and guilt. We eagerly await the redemption of our bodies, the future hope that is secure for all who are saved by the one who crushed the head of the serpent, our ancient enemy on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we are sinners. It started in the garden. You were there, Lord. We fell. We grasped for that which was not for us to grasp for. We willfully transgressed your commands. But Lord, you had mercy on us. You promised a savior to crush the head of the serpent. You promised that the human race would continue. And Lord, as the story of Scripture goes on, you revealed to us through the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself that you are a God of grace and of mercy. Oh, Lord, would you create in our hearts worship and praise on account of your nature Would you cause us to burst out delighting in who you are? Because you are, you saved us, Lord. We did nothing. We we broke what you created. We we ruined it. But you saved us because you're good. You're a good, good father, Lord. Oh, God, would you, would you, in our hearts, help us to recognize your grace every day, Lord, to wake up reveling in the mercy that you have shown towards us. Lord, thank you for who you are, for your very nature. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the seed of the woman who bore our sins on the cross and in one fell swoop destroyed the powers of evil, established your kingdom, Lord. God, sanctify us with your words. We love you, Lord. We love you and we praise your name this morning. Thank you that you are a good God. We pray these things.
in your name, in your son's name. Amen.